episode 157 of some like it scott i'm your host scott harvey and i'm joined as always by my co-host scott sheldon today on the podcast we're tackling the second of this year's four mcu releases the wuxia inspired origin story shang chi and the legend of the ten rings but first how are you scott doing pretty well scott i am made my way down to miami for my second trip down here over the summer uh, enjoying some nice very warm weather, and uh, caught a Shang-Chi movie this weekend, you know? Actually saw it twice. You're one of those people who goes back just to to watch the MCU films over and over again. Couldn't be me, Scott. Couldn't be me. I wouldn't normally have seen the movie twice, but circumstances arose where I did see it twice. And you know what? I enjoyed the film. It, was, it wasn't a bad use of, of 130 minutes or whatever it was. All right. Well, there's our review. Uh, I think we can move on to news now, uh, if that's okay with you. If we've got your review sure, of the film, you know, as well. yeah. Uh, yeah, we'll we'll get there eventually. But uh, no, yeah, Scott, I was back in Tennessee. I was also traveling uh, for the holiday. I was back in Tennessee, um, so I drove straight back six hours yesterday from back to North Carolina and went straight to the theater and watched uh, watched Shang Chi last night, so we could do this podcast. Um, so you cannot say that I am not committed to the bit um, because I I made sure we could get this in as soon as possible. Um, and, well, you know, I'd say, I was I'd a say you bit... were half committed. You could have watched it. You could have dragged your family out to see an Asian led superhero movie, gotten the whole family into it. Yeah, and then we could have recorded true. yesterday. That's true. I guess that was that was pretty weak sauce of me to to not even at least attempt that and be laughed at in my attempt. But um, you know, could have at least made the attempt, I suppose. But uh, no, Mar- I got the- Marshall's not waiting at at the box office to buy his ticket to the next Marvel movie. I can't say that that he is, but actually, my mom did know had heard of the movie, so which that was that was a plus because. You know, she doesn't always know about the movies, but also, you know, it's Marvel, right? I feel like these movies are, are so permeate the permeate culture so much that, especially if you're watching TV a lot and watching sports a lot, which my parents do, you're going to see these commercials popping up a lot. So, um, I'm Absolutely. sure that was a factor in it as well. Uh, anyway, Scott, uh, as mentioned, our movie today is Shang Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, directed by Destin Daniel Cretton. Shang Chi sets the stage with some history. As a boy living in China, our titular hero loses his beloved mother after she is murdered by vengeful warriors, leaving Shang-Chi with only a mysterious pendant. Shang-Chi's father, Wen Wu, played by Tony Leung, soon becomes obsessed with getting revenge for his wife's death, even attempting to turn young young Shang-Chi into a killing machine himself. Wen Wu is a seemingly unstoppable fighter in possession of the powerful supernatural weapons known as the Ten Rings. But soon, however, Shang-Chi abandons his father and sister Shaoling, moving to America where he eventually grows up. Years later, Shang-Chi, now going by the name Sean and played by Simu Liu, is working as a San Francisco valet alongside his best friend Katie, played by Aquafina. 
Sean believes that he has escaped his past until suddenly his father sends warriors to retrieve Sean's pendant. In the ensuing struggle, Sean's pendant is taken from him, and if he is to retrieve it, it will mean returning to Macau and the family he'd left behind, confronting old foes and new ones in the process. Scott Shang-Chi is clearly an attempt at a new type of MCU film with its martial arts-inspired action and its all-Asian cast, but does Cretton's film effectively introduce us to the next great MCU hero, or is this origin story a few rings short of something truly powerful? Interesting questions, I think, to throw around here. I think it, there's a couple elements to look through or to look at, you know, as a lens to to answer this question. I think one is just, I think it, it's important to say that not only is this a almost entirely Asian cast and certainly an Asian-led cast, this film has performed extremely well at the box office. Granted, a Marvel movie has never released on Labor Day weekend, but it completely eviscerated any previous Labor Day weekend records for box office. And we're talking pre-pandemic, obviously. So this movie made, I think, 94 million plus, maybe even a little bit more than that at the box office this past weekend domestically. And, you know, that is, it does have the advantage of an extra day with Monday over Black Widow. So it's not a direct comparison to that, but this is a really strong opening for uh, a movie, particularly in the context that we're seeing here. And sort of like we saw with Crazy Rich Asians a few years ago, I think that really validates that, you know, a, like when you have a cast and a property and a director with a vision that is diverse and centered around this experience that will speak to a lot of people and that even that people who aren't necessarily the direct audience of that will enjoy, that is really successful. Right? You don't need these other components. You know, that's a, I think that's one lens. I think that's, a, in that sense, I think that would say that Dustin Daniel Cretton has introduced, you know, another really well-received Marvel hero to the mix. Maybe the first of phase four, because we haven't really gotten new characters yet. We're going to get more as time goes on here. We have the Eternals coming up and just a couple months, which is almost entirely new characters from what we can tell. But then the second lens, I think, to look at this question through is, you know, did we think the film was of a good quality? Which I think is really what you're trying to get at with your question. And I think that for the most part, the martial arts inspiration, the character of uh, Shang-Chi, I think that that is a pretty interesting and enjoyable character and visual experience certainly different from any other Marvel movie that we've seen so far. And I think when we, way back when we reviewed Black Panther in 2018, I think one of the things that we talked about was that, you know, one of the reasons why these MCU movies are so successful is, yes, they have different genres, but even within similar genres when they do overlap, you're getting different flavors. And that in Black Panther, we talked about how the fighting style was very different. The combat was very different than what we'd seen in a lot of other Marvel movies. And so even though a lot of things feel similar, there is a different flavor to those similarities that adds some extra spice to it to, to make it feel a bit different, a bit differentiated, and a bit better, um, and less stale in that way. And I think Shang-Chi is another example of that. I think that Shang-Chi, the martial arts, the very fluid combat, I think through, call it 80% plus of the film, is something that I found to be very enjoyable to watch as someone who has not been super exposed to martial arts movies. And so I think a lot of the, the movies that inspire 
a lot of Shang-Chi here I'm not familiar with and haven't seen. And I think as as much as those movies can inspire and and expose viewers to those elements of, you know, decades of, of movie tradition and martial art movie tradition that you know, millions of people have enjoyed and exposed that to new people, I think there's a lot of success in that. And I think I felt that success. I really enjoyed that element of the movie. And I think that, you know, maybe I'm, I'm a bit skeptical of some some of this character that Simu Liu is playing. I think maybe we can get into that a little bit more. But I do think that he has a lot of potential to be sort of the new the new breakout star in the MCU. I think that he's a very approachable and relatable character within the MCU for everyone. Because I think that Shang-Chi is one of the few movies in the MCU where you could have seen more or less none of the MCU films and gotten most of the experience out of it. Yes, you're going to miss some references. There's certainly some references to Doctor Strange, even Hulk. Um, and that's excluding the uh, the credit scenes. Iron Man 3, of course. Iron Man 3, yeah, obviously probably the you know the biggest direct uh, connection, I, got, I, I would say. But I think that you can still enjoy this movie and, and understand what's happening, you know, 95 plus percent of the, of the film without seeing this. And I think that makes it a really nice entry point, which I think is not necessary when you have the MCU's reach as deep as it is within, you know, popular culture. But it is nice. And I think it, it does make, it does elevate a little bit to say, you know, this isn't Spider-Man No Way Home. You don't have to have seen 15 different Marvel movies and maybe even some non-Marvel movies to fully understand what's going on in that film, you can just roll up on Labor Day weekend and watch this movie. And you're probably going to have a pretty good time watching it. And I think I was describing this to someone today or yesterday as it's kind of like the platonic ideal of a Marvel film, I think. It's this like, there are things to complain about. We'll get into those. There are things that are that are really enjoyable. We'll get into those. And I think for the most part, the really enjoyable things outweigh the things to complain about. And I think that most people are going to walk into this movie or have walked into this movie and are going to walk out saying, you know, I really enjoyed that. I liked the characters, the combat um, was fluid, interesting, engaging for the most part. And I like that it felt really authentic. I think that a lot of people will probably say that um, as much as we've debated the the A word on the Sam podcast. Sam Levinson will have something to say about that. Yeah. Yeah. He's probably breaking down the door right now. I have to stop. We'll know why. Um, but yeah, I, I think that this really is a strong candidate for, you know, some, for a Marvel character and a Marvel sub franchise that's going to be really successful in the years to come. I don't know if they'll be able to hang on to Dustin Daniel Cretton to direct more movies. I'm sure they can wave a, a large enough figure to get him to come back and direct another. They certainly did it with Ryan Coogler with Black Panther. Um, and so I wonder if they'll be able to do that with Dustin Daniel Cretton as well. But I do think that he his passion for this is a really important element to translating this to the screen. I think the passion of, of Simu Liu as well. I mean, there's tweets going back years and years and years, even before this project was announced, of him of him trying to get into the Marvel universe and play this character. And so I think there's a lot of there's a lot of passion there, um, which translates really well onto the screen, in, in spite of some, you know, caveats or hesitations that I might have that we can get into later. And so overall. I was pleasantly surprised by how much I enjoyed this movie inside of its flaws and also pleasantly surprised by the potential I feel like this character has to be really criti- uh, critically important to the MC moving forward and can be, I think, that sort of anchoring point to bring even more people 
into the MCU who might have, you know, not been interested in in the MCU so far, but decided to roll up to Shang Chi on a on a Sunday afternoon or a Monday and watch it and be like, hey, you know, maybe I'll I'll catch the next movie this guy's in if I'm not going to watch every MCU movie. Yeah, and the other thing to mention, you know, you started out talking about sort of the business side of this, and I don't want to go too far down that road, but um, the other thing to mention, right, maybe another argument for exclusive theatrical windows, like still being, uh, you know, profitable, not just with Shang-Chi, but with Candyman, which had a strong second weekend, and Free Guy, which is still, um, you know, do performing pretty well deep into its theatrical run so there's yeah. three movies right there which obviously didn't get the streaming release you know you compared shang chi to black widow and sure yeah there are other factors of the labor day weekend um probably yeah. helped it as well but black widow was on disney plus and plenty of people yeah. watched the movie on disney plus yeah that's the pretty wild thing right like i mean obviously you'll never know the counter the counterpoints etc black widow did have a stronger opening three days it it did like a little bit over 80 and Shang-Chi did a little bit under 80. But when you factor in the Labor Day weekend, yes. And then, yeah, again, thinking about, you know, how many of these people would have gone and watched Black Widow on the big screen if, if it wasn't available for $30 on Disney Plus? It's a great question. I think that, you know, I, I don't think day and date has no impact on a film success at the box office. I, but I also don't think it's the be-all, end-all of a film success either. And it's somewhere in the middle, and I think it's figuring that out. And I think we continue to see more data points that suggest that it does have some impact, right, to your point that you're making, absolutely. Um, and I think studios are still trying to feel out exactly what that impact means. I mean, I mean, Sony, we're not going to talk – I mean, might as well talk about this now because we're not going to talk about it later. I mean, Sony is just like, you know, ch changing their Venom release date with with the wind. I mean, if the box office is spaghetti at the wall, yeah. Yeah, if, if the box office does poorly next weekend, are they going to change Venom's release date again? Because they're freaking out that the box office is doing poorly. I mean, they, they moved it back a month because of the Delta variant. Then they moved it up two weeks, presumably because Shang-Chi did so well. Because we're all cured. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's just silly. But yeah, Scott, I think towards the end of what you were saying, uh, you got at what I think is the real strength of the movie, at least for me, of Shang-Chi is... This doesn't. This movie doesn't feel super connected to the MCU as a whole, and that's just one of the problems I have. One of the reasons why I can never get fully on board with a lot of MCU movies is that they just feel so calculated, and it's like this is, you know, this has to play this specific part in this greater alchemy that is the MCU, this greater equation that's going on here, and the movies just feel like cogs in the machine sometimes, more than like individual stories with their own personalities and. It's not surprising that when you get somebody like Dan Destin Daniel Cretton, and I'm expecting to see the same with uh, with Eternals and Chloe Zhao later this year, that you get you know an independently minded filmmaker um, that they want to make their own thing. They don't want to just necessarily make a sort of Black Widow esque movie that for me is just kind of like we're bridging the gap to the next part of the MCU. Like it just feels again very sort of perfunctory. Like let's just get this out of the way so we can move on to what's next. And, you know, that's that's not what you get with with Shang-Chi. And I, I think that the director is a large part of that. And it's good to see that Marvel is not suffocating these, um, you know, creators. And, they, you know, they, th this isn't the first example. I mean, Ryan Coogler, I think you could say that he's uh, someone in that variety. Taika Waititi, obviously, with Thor Ragnarok. I think Marvel has allowed them 
to do their own thing with the movies that they have made in the MCU. And that's a good thing. That's encouraging. Again, for me being a fan, such a fan of Chloe Zhao's last film, um, I, you know, I'm very excited to see what they allow her to do with Eternals because I don't think necessarily that her style it fits what you would think of as an MCU film, but that's exciting. That's an exciting idea to me. Um, and I think even in the trailers, uh, the trailer for Eternals, there's some encouraging signs, but as for this film, um, I think the individuality of it is, a, is a huge strength and the movie does really want to create its own world, to tell its own story, to build up its own characters, um, as their own people, you know, not just as, we're, we're just moving these people onto the Avengers, although that does happen, of course. Um, and, and I really liked that about the movie. I was having a really good time with this movie, um, for about the first two thirds. Um, I think, uh, you know, the humor doesn't always work for me, but it had good, it, good spirits about it. I liked the performers, uh, for the most part. I think there's some really good action scenes early on, like the, the bus fight scene, um, is fantastic. Like it, it really is like the, not, not just the, the choreography of it all, um, which obviously is good. And obviously, you know, that's what you expect to see in a martial arts inspired film, but some of the cinematography actually was pretty, um, inventive. I thought like the outside shots of the bus when he's like running through and like jumping across from, you know, car to car or whatever, and there's fighting going on, like that goes from one car to the next and we're all sort of like panned out seeing this like widescreen view i thought that was really awesome like i thought that was a you know unique way to shoot that um so i I was really liking the action i really liked how a lot of that looked and then we get to the last act of the movie and not even really the whole last act but like the last 20 minutes of action and the movie just absolutely grinds to a complete halt and so much of that is because the visuals suck in this last battle, like absolutely terrible in my opinion. I'm not, I'm not just saying by like a Marvel standards or by, you know, a movie that has the, however many hundreds of millions of dollars behind it. Like by, by any standards to me, the visuals of the, this last sort of these last couple of battles that go on in the movie are awful, are not pleasant to look at at all. It's gray, it's drab, it's ugly. And there's so much CGI and it's just an absolute mishmash of like just computer generated blah. And it just like um, really ruined to me. And I'm, I'm not one of these people who's like, you know, angry old man shaking my fist at the cloud saying we CGI, we need to go back to all practical effects in these movies. No, obviously, you know, plenty of movies have good use of CGI. But um, to me, it just like, here when you combine it with like the ugliness of the landscapes and the fact that I think the movie tells a really compelling human story. And then it just decides to settle all of that with, um, you know, to, to bring all of that, to resolve all of this, you know, compelling human story with some supernatural punching and, you know, supernatural, supernatural powers and things shooting off. And again, just a whole mess of stuff going on um and a lot of it's sort of unintelligible um so i was really disappointed with the way the the direction that it chose to go in that you know again that those final moments of action because like i said i i was really on this movie's wavelength i felt like for the first two-thirds of the movie um i thought it was a, a really good origin story and of course i am still positive on the movie like that those moments don't ruin it for me but i think 
and it's not the first MCU film where we've seen that like for whatever reason like the the visuals just are so like dark and you know drab in a lot of MCU movies it just seems like that's kind of the look that um, for whatever reason, they've decided to resolve some of these. I mean, even Avengers Endgame, right? Like the the scene absolutely still works because of how great of a job they've done building up the emotional stakes at that point. But the final portal scene, right? Like it's not the most pleasing visuals to the eye, right? The environment. And I understand why, like it, it makes sense for the story, right? There's just been this huge explosion, whatever. They just bombed out this whole area, basically, where they're having this fight. But that doesn't mean that it, it looks that great to me. Um, I, I, it'll just, I mean, results will vary, I'm sure, um, on this kind of thing. But I just prefer, um, you know, I, I, of course, I've said this before, but I really prefer that early 2000, early to mid 2000s comic book movies. And I think the visuals of those movies, um, are a reason why, even though the effects of those movies might not hold up as well nowadays, I would so much rather watch X-Men or Spider-Man um, or, you know, what those movies visually have to offer than, again, the ungodly gray visuals that is the final battles in this movie. Um, so when does that start for you, actually? I'm, I'm curious. Like, when, it when starts... When you draw the line? I full spoilers, I guess, but... Yeah, it starts when Shang-Chi and his dad start fighting outside of the gate. Um, it yeah. gets, and then of course the dragon and all that happens. And it just, it kind of just compounds itself and gets worse for me. Like once you start introducing more CGI and stuff into it. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm probably coming off stronger than most people feel about it um, in terms of this part of the movie. But I do think that, the visuals are really weak and for as much money as this movie costs um, and as much as that Marvel has behind it, um, I think the least they could do is make a movie that looks, you know, really cool and good. And they did for a for a long while. And then they just bottled it in the end. And, you know, again, I think that a lot of the impact of the, the storytelling here, which is which is the best part of the movie. Like I, I think the storytelling and world building and stuff is really good. And I think the main MCU problem that I have in a lot of movies, the villain problem, is not at all present here. Quite the opposite. I think that Tony Leung's performance as Wen Wu is fantastic. Like I think he, he's excellent in the movie. He's easily a top five MCU villain immediately for me. Immediately. Um, I think um, he's just such a fleshed out character and we'll talk a little bit more about that but i so so it's frustrating it, it really is a frustrating again is the word that i would use it's a word that i've used about a lot of summer movies i feel like and this one is definitely better than a lot of the movies that we've talked about it's way better than black widow um it's way better than you know like a lot of the big franchise movies but it had the potential to be even better um and i was enjoying it for so much of the movie that i i am left a little bit shaking my head um when all is said and done at um, you know, the way, how, how hard of a, a left turn for me, this movie took in that last 20 minutes of action or so. Yeah, it definitely does take a turn. And I think that that turn does end in a weaker place than all of the action sequences we'd had up to that point. Right. I mean, talk about the sort of the opening action sequence being the bus sequence, which is 
I mean, that's one of the high points of the movie for me. I think that the stuff that they do in Macau is also really strong. Talk about the 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 building fight scene like that is visually not a very I mean I think that that visually falls in the category of what you're talking about it's like it's really boring visually it's dark outside they're on the side of a building they're not doing anything cool with like lighting or anything like that but the fighting is really cool and really interesting where I, and so it makes up for it and then you get to the end and I think it really I mean it becomes a different movie I would say by the end and it's I mean, I said this in my letterbox review, but it's like God, it's gone, it's fully gone like Godzilla, King of the Monsters, where you have yeah. one big kaiju fighting another big kaiju, and there are some humans running around on the ground that are influencing the fight a little bit. And you know, I, I think that that is, you know, maybe, maybe inevitable. I guess in a Marvel movie, it's all about scale and. And ramping scale up and up and up and up and up over the course of a film, but I do think that, I mean, one of the cool. I mean, I, I'm not totally negative on the last half hour of the film. I do really like the fight scene in front of the gate. I understand where you're coming from visually, but I think the rings are really cool and what they do with the rings and the fighting. I think is really was really engaging and interesting to me. Sounds like your mileage varied a little bit there. Um, Again, with the, with the I, rings. I, I, I liked it. It was just in the context at the end of the movie where there's so much else, like you said, supernatural stuff going on. It just mm -hmm. feels like it's just further dehumanizing all of the proceedings when you also have, you know, shooting off the rings and all that. Um, whereas yeah, I, mean, I, I in the think... movie, I think like you really see the impact of that because there's like realistic martial arts fighting and stuff going on. And then, you know, when Wu comes in with his, rings and like just devastates you know or you know yeah. completely um changes the way that the fight is fought and i think it works because it's used sparingly and strategically whereas at the end of the movie it just kind of gets lost in the mishmash of all the other cgi supernatural stuff that's going on yeah and that's i think that's what i wanted to go for and say that i think that the ending could have been stronger if it slimmed it down right like you take out the dragon and the bigger dragon the bad dragon whatever you want to call him the great devourer or whatever his name is and you take out the great protector and i think that you have this this final battle between wen wu and jung chi and i think that you're going to have something that's a little bit more compelling right in my opinion that's just me i understand that there is this emotional payoff moment in theory with wen wu realizing his mistakes and gifting the rings to shang chi and i i do think that that, that moment works to an extent but i do think that they're as as everything's relative right i think that that tony leong is a very 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 good villain for the mcu i still think that there are some i still had some some qualms about the character overall um qualms that are relatively smaller than the qualms i typically have with mcu villains but qualms nonetheless that i think remind you that this is a villain in a superhero movie at the end of the day, um, which is whatever. Uh, I don't want to get, I mean, I know that we typically follow a certain path for these discussions, but I did want to go ahead and, and give my two cents sort of on the, on the finale, since you were talking about it so much. I think that the rings are cool. I think that they make a mistake to go and sort of change it from a martial arts movie to this sort of like Godzilla-esque type movie. At the end, I think that doesn't necessarily work so well. 
and and so I'm a bit I'm a bit more I guess I'm a bit more positive, but overall still very mixed on the finale, especially kind of but be- I don't want to say betray, but straying away from sort of the the roots that it laid down laid down for itself over the course of the film to that point. Um, in terms of action, had been very satisfying and very compelling. Yeah, it's just it's kind of a bizarre choice to me ultimately, but. Um, Scott, let's move on now and talk about the performers in more detail. Um, Simu Liu, you mentioned, um, he's kind of the one non-recognizable face here uh, of the cast. Of course, everybody else, um, Aquafina, Tony Leone, uh, Michelle Yeoh, Ben Kingsley, um, all of these people we've we've seen um, in well, other stuff. Whoever plays his sister. I've never seen her before. That's true. This is actually like her first film ever, which is amazing because yeah. she's really good. But um but, uh, you know, he's tasked here with creating this new character. This person is going to, you know, be a new Avenger. Um, do you think he is successful in, you know, making you want to see more from this character and feeling like he making you feel like he will stand out amongst the ever growing lineup of, you know, heroes? Yeah, I had, I had this weird um, experience going into the movie where one of my coworkers is actually uh one of her close friends went to high school with him and apparently like he's like was kind of a dick in high school <laughs> i feel um, like that's always how it turns out with yeah. these actors yeah so <laughs> i had like a sort of like negative view of him going in but i think that he kind of he i think he did win me over i, I do really like simulu in this i think that the passion i was mentioning this before but i think the clear passion that he has for being in this this franchise and being this particular character and telling this particular story in this franchise, I think I think is is pretty compelling at times. To be honest, I don't think he's a great actor though. I don't think that this this role really convinces me that he could that he would translate his like skills would translate to other to other movies that might be less personally, I don't know, relevant to or personally important to him. Like, I'd be curious if he could channel that passion into something that maybe he feels a little bit less invested in. I'd be curious to see that, because I think there are some chinks in the in the proverbial dragon scale armor in his performance, but from the mar- on the emotional level. But on the martial arts level, I mean, I think he does a really great job doing all the combat sequences. Uh, you mentioned the bus scene and the cinematography and the choreography. I think he does a pretty good job there. I think that he's he's a pretty likable character if not um, quite as compelling as maybe some of the other characters, uh, lead characters in the MCU have been. But I like him overall, and I'm curious to see how this performance is able to evolve over time and and how he's able to build up this character of Shang-Chi, who's going to have more responsibility and presumably be, I don't want to say a central figure in whatever legacy Avengers movie there is, you know, big team-up movie there is next, but, a, but he's going to be a relevant character. You mentioned Black Panther as sort of a comparison point for parts of this movie. I have to say, I kind of felt the same about Simu Liu as Shang-Chi as I did watching Chadwick Boseman as T'Challa in Black Panther, which is that I think he's arguably one of the least interesting characters in the movie and that everything around him is in a lot of ways more compelling and that his best moments as the character are when he is interacting with the other characters. I'm not sure, standing alone, how effective I think, you know, they set up this character's origin story. Again, other than to say that 
I think the stuff like between him and Tony Leung is really good. You know, the chemistry between him and Aquafina, I think, works really well. Um, but I question, you know, like going forward, right, when we leave some of these storylines behind, what does this character have to, you know, anchor sort of his personality on and his, yeah. you know, where, where what is his art going to be going forward? Um, I think that is a better articulated version of what I was saying, I think, to that point. Yeah. I, think, I think that is that is kind of spot on because, I mean, granted, I don't think he has that many moments where he's not playing off these characters. Mm-hmm. And I think, and I think to your point here, you know, as this franchise goes on, as he, as there are different threads that are picked up. I mean, I think Aquafina will be a part of whatever movie he's in next. I think that will, Very that will clearly, continue. Yeah. yeah. And you know, his sister, I don't know what they're doing at the end, if they're setting her up to be a villain in the next movie or, or what the deal is. Um, but the, the, you know, some of those characters are still going to be there, but I think the real question is, and the longevity in the franchise is, is can he play off Captain Marvel? the Hulk, whatever it may be, you know, that, that, that he's teaming up with next, um, Wong, Dr. Strange, whoever it is, can he, is that chemistry and that, and that ability to play off of, you know, those characters as strong as what you get here. And that's just a big question mark. Um, because he doesn't have these big emotional solitary moments like Robert Downey Jr. did, for example, an Iron Man, or even you get Captain America having, um, yeah, or Loki, for example, right? Like in the television show most recently, I think that the, those moments are going to, it's not evident that he's going to, he's capable of, of engineering those type of moments. Yeah. And I mean, you know, maybe it doesn't have a lot of implications going forward because like you said, he's always going to be playing off of other characters. It doesn't feel like there's, you know, especially now that you're joining the Avengers, there's going to be a lot of moments for him to just sort of do his own thing. Um, yeah. But I don't know if I see that as a positive necessarily. But um, Scott, it's, it's going to be a movie about. by movie basis, probably is what it's going to be. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned Aquafina, um, Scott, and um, obviously we had you brought up Crazy Rich Asians earlier, another movie that she featured in um, prominently as a supporting role. Um, this is her second Disney adjacent movie of the year. Of course, she was also a voice in Raya and the Last Dragon. Um, it seems like in a lot of these Asian influenced, you know, blockbuster films, she is just constantly showing up here and doing her thing. What do you think about her thing in the context of this movie? Again, because we are probably going to be seeing more of this character that's heavily implied by what happens at the end, end of the movie with Long. Yeah, Scott, I, I don't know if we'll disagree on, on this or not, but I'm kind of tired of it. I'm tired of the Aquafina shtick, unfortunately. I think, you know, you mentioned that. Shang-Chi might be one of those characters similar to a Chadwick Boseman Black Panther character where everything around them is is more interesting. I feel that way except about Aquafina. I'm like, I don't know why this why this woman is in this movie other than, I guess, comedic relief. I mean, that's the answer, right? She's in this movie because she's comedic relief. Um, and she's a foil for this, for this main character of Shang-Chi. And I, I think that that will work really well for some people. And that will get old really quickly for others. And for me, at this point, it's gotten a little bit old. I think that she does the same thing in every role that she does, with the exception of The Farewell. So the only movie where she did something original, it felt like. And I just find it boring. I just find that shtick to be boring and like bordering on a little bit annoying to me at this point. That's not going to be everyone's experience. I just feel like it's not interesting what she's doing. And yes, she has. She does have good chemistry with Simu Liu. I absolutely think that that is true. 
but I, I don't, I just, I'm, I'm having a hard time in my head coming to like some conclusion where I feel like it's just like, she as a character is justified in this movie. I think she's the weakest point of the film for me. Yeah, I kind of agree. Unfortunately, I, I don't know about weakest part of the film. Again, I've said what I think is the weakest part of the film, but um, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's, it's frustrating again, to use the word frustrating because you know, I think she was a real scene stealer in Ocean's 8, in Crazy Rich Asians. I think The Farewell, she was, you know, Oscar caliber dramatic performance. But also, like, blending, still blending her comedic sensibility with, you know, the dramatic stuff in that movie. Like, I think that was what made that so good, is that they didn't completely erase all of her comed- clear comedic yeah. ability, comedic chops. Um, they just, you know, put it in a different context and... Gave her some serious scenes, too. And I kind of thought that's the direction they were headed at the start of this movie. You get, like, that scene at her house with her family and everything, which I really liked. And I thought, okay, maybe there's going to be more to this character than just the sidekick cracking jokes. There's really not, unfortunately. Um, And I do do think, yeah, I do think that the the chemistry is good between her and Simu Liu, but... Yeah, it just like it totally wears out its welcome, and she is just just doing the same thing. And again, I feel bad for her. Like I don't think it's a her thing. I think it's just movies are just defaulting to using her in a particular way. Um, you would think that this that, would be the kind of movie that wouldn't do that, though. I mean, it's clear that that people are defaulting, but like you'd expect someone like Dustin Daniel Cretton. I mean, even John M. Chu, right? I mean, maybe John, maybe the argument is John M. Chu did it better, right? Like they balanced it better in crazy rich Asians. Or we just hadn't seen it that much at that point, you know. I think that's probably more likely what it is to be fair. But like Destiny Daniel Cretton watch I, I presume he watches movies and saw the farewell. Like what I don't know what you're doing with like doing this particular thing with Aquafina in this movie, even if people are okay with it, which I'm sure some people absolutely will be. I just think it's boring. Yeah, uh, I, I'm afraid I have to agree. I can't really think of a ton of lines where I actually did laugh. And I I still think there's potential for her again, because I do still like her as a personality. And And she's capable. She's like so clearly capable to do it. Yeah. You've got to do more with the character than you do in this movie, because she's again, she's going to be around. She doesn't need to be around doing the same thing again or or else. Yeah, it's going to get so tiresome because. God knows we already have enough characters in the MCU whose only purpose is to stand around and crack jokes. Like, that's basically all of the Guardians of the Galaxy. Um, but I digress. Um, Scott... Uh, let's not, let's person, not slander one of my top MCU movies too much. Yeah, I know. The other person in the cast who's probably worth talking about here is Tony Leung as uh, Wen Wu, who is the villain here. He plays uh, Shang-Chi's father. Um very interesting fact that this is his first American film that he's been in because um, if you look that. at his filmography is absolutely stacked. Like I was looking at this last night. It is crazy the amount of like massive Chinese movies that he has been in. Like he, of course, is probably best known for his work with Wong Kar Wai, all of Wong Kar Wai's big movies, Chunking Express, In the Mood for Love, Happy Together. Um, he worked with Ang Lee on Lust Caution. He did Hard Boiled, which is like the most famous John Woo movie um, before yeah. John Woo crossed over to America. He was in Infernal Affairs, the, the movie that was remade yeah. as The Departed. He did um, A City of Sadness, which is a movie with Xiao Shen Hu, which is like one of his most like 
acclaimed movies and he's the lead in all of these right like this is not like he's a supporting character like he has anchored so many huge movies um, in the hong kong film you know sphere over the last 20 30 years i mean he's almost 60 years old now which is crazy because he looks and he's same as he did iconic Junking right? Express, which is you know the early nineties. But um, I mean, he's played he's played Ip Man in the Grandmaster. Like yeah. he's played some of the most iconic Chinese characters too. Yeah, and so it's crazy that this is his first American movie. But it's awesome that the rest of the world, who maybe isn't as experienced with foreign film, is finally getting to discover how great he is. At least that's my opinion. What did you think about his performance here? Yeah, I mean, like I alluded to earlier, I think that he is a really strong villain character. I do think in terms of character performance combination, like he is up there with, you know, Michael B. Jordan as Killmonger and Black Panther. I think that, you know, I mean, I do think Josh Brolin as Thanos is, is up there as well. We can sit down and, and lay out the list probably a little bit more clearly if, if we wanted to, but I think he's on that short list of top MCU villains for a reason and i think that the performance is there he's very capable i do think that one of the big hang-ups for me in in the villain arc is just that i think it's it's insane like just how like deranged i think this character is in terms of like insistent that there's just no way that this supernatural voice that he's hearing It'd might be not trick, be yeah. his wife I just find I just find that to be a bit crazy to me, and, and I do I know suspend disbelief. We do it so much for these types of movies and whatnot, but I was just like, yeah, this guy's like <laughs> this guy is crazy, um, and and not in a way that I think I could tie back necessarily um, in all the ways that I wanted to to believe the character. I don't think that's the fault of the performance. I and if anything, it, it, I feel like he's almost performing above the level of the character if that's if that's okay to say um because he is just such a great performer you know the it, you you watch the opening scene and I, and I think that the opening people have been going crazy about the opening sequence of him and especially when it's with Fala Chen uh his his wife the mother that you alluded to at the at the beginning when you learn the story I think people are like just losing their minds about this scene. And I, I think it's good, but I think that the narrative of it is just like head bashingly silly. That this for like this woman, first man she meets, she falls in love with and marries. I'm just like, God, can we just kill me already? Um, I I liked it. I honestly did. Yeah, you're hypocritical then because you slam that that story, that arc, all the, that thread all the time about isolated woman meets meets man for first you know, first time and falls in love. I don't know. I just think it's told in a really compelling way. Like I like the, well, so that that's uh, the redeeming quality right there is the martial arts yeah. sequence with it. Narratively though, I think the, the film is like, and, the, the, and the then scene. like the last line of like, that was the first time I met your father or whatever, like re the reveal that like, Oh, Hey, they got, I was like, Oh, is that, that a reveal was though. Cool. Like, it was, like, well, it was pretty obvious from the outset. Uh, it, pro it probably is, but I don't know. Yeah. I was just like, you know, in the moment, enjoying the movie, wasn't really thinking about that part of it that much. And then that happened, and I was like, oh, that's a nice little line there. So Yeah, I mean, the martial arts of it all, introducing you to the vibe that, that most of the action is going to have over the course of the film, I mean, I think that's really compelling. Um, especially if we got this, you get this impression very quickly that he's this person who's not used to being defeated, right? Like, he's literally probably never been defeated in his life. 
and he's getting his ass handed to him, which I think is good. But yeah, I think that the whole coming together of that narrative was a, was more than a bit eye rolly for me personally. Anyway, back to Tony Leung. I just think that the character there's holes. I guess is what I'm going to say. I find that there are holes, um, in in the characterization for me. But again, I think Tony Leung is 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 performing at the level, if not you know above the level of the character itself. And so yeah. I don't have a bad thing to say about him. Yeah, I think I agree with that part because I hear what you're saying about like his obsession i don't know i think he just sold the pain that this character felt so well that i was willing to go with him to even you know even so diluted of a state that he eventually reaches i, I think i like, wish we had more like, of that almost yeah that's, i guess that's what i'm saying it's like we, we get a scene or two here and there and i know i don't know ultimately that's like not the movie's never going to be that or whatever but like a few more scenes it, of that a few more cutaways and i feel like i would have been there Again, I do like the dynamic as well between him and, and Shang-Chi of like both of them kind of blame each other for what ended up happening to, you know, his wife, Shang-Chi's mother. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think that um, he's I still think he's, you know, excellent in the movie. Like I said, I think he's easily such a, a leaps and bounds above the the average mcu villain for me and it's because they treat him like an actual person with actual complexity to him i mean again let me go let's go back to the you know early 2000s movies like i was talking about like you know magneto green goblin doc ock all of these villains are complicated characters right it's not just they're not just pure evil they have good in them um and that is what makes them so compelling i think is that struggle that you see going on in all of them to you know is which side is going to get the better of them and i think the same is true about when we like i don't think he's just pure evil or anything again he has motivations that you understand like if he, if he actually believes his wife is out there um you know like yeah, of course, you you understand why he would sort of go to the ends of the earth to try and get her back. Um, but there is a cost to that that he kind of ignores, right? And I think there's even some kind of like anti-imperialism like going on here because, you know, it basically about how he has to like start a war against these people multiple times um, to sort of fulfill his own personal desire right which is at first it's just to sort of discover this world and the magical creatures and everything that are there and you know the second time that it happens at the end of the movie it's to you know free his wife what he feels like is his wife there who is there um and he doesn't really again he doesn't really think about the hundreds thousands of lives that could be lost for him to try and rescue one who may may not even be there um so there's interesting things going on with the character. Again, there's complexity to him, which is what you want in a villain. Um, I think it's an excellent performance. And, um, uh, you know, again, even even comparing to the M other MCU villains, like Killmonger is another example of someone who's often talked about as the best MCU villain. Complex character. Again, he's not just like one dimensional. Um, it's just I mean, it's just basic rules of creating characters, right? Not just villains, just characters in general they need to be multi-dimensional and i feel like too often in the mcu we have not gotten that with the villains um certainly not in black widow which we yeah you know, i do think that because because of such a strong focus on the heroes and the fun of it all i put that in quotation marks 
I do think that the MCU often finds it difficult to also cram in a villain, like a, a villain backstory or a villain context that is as compelling as what we would want there to be for there to be a villain, right? Like the MC at the end of the day, the MCU 90% of the time, the villain is like the third or fourth most important thing on like the storyboard probably, right? The, one of the exceptions being Thanos. And I think another one, of, another exception being these sort of one-off movies here and there that are, that the point of the story is this like deeply complex relationship that, that family members have with each other. That was the case for Killmonger, who is this long lost brother. Um, well, cousin, I guess, technically of T'Challa. And then again here with Wen Wu, who's, you know, sort of the father who abandoned Shang-Chi and Xiao Shen. It's all about family. Yeah, get Dom Toretto up in this. Here we go. I, yeah, I just think it's so interesting, right? It's like when the MCU chooses to prioritize villains as important characters in the stories and important characters to the heroes themselves, that's when we end up, I feel like that's when we end up getting good villains, right? And it's a shame that they don't prioritize that more often. And that's partly because they're not trying to make one-off good movies all the time. I mean, they, they're trying to make and, one-off good movies, but they're not trying to make sta truly standalone movies. And in the process, does the development of the actual hero suffer? Like, again, we're talking about talking about Black Panther and Shang-Chi, two movies, like I said, where at least I personally feel like the supporting characters are... Um, more interesting so maybe the mcu just hasn't really found that balance yet um of like you know developing all the characters on the same level to the same degree but yeah i mean not every villain can be the person like you know this deep personal story about i mean like it's just, it's just the sure. truth right like the like it'll be interesting to see what spider-man does right but like we haven't seen a deeply personal villain to spider-man yet like we've seen the vulture and we've seen in the mcu Earth. yeah Yes, yeah, and let me see you. We've seen Vulture played by Michael Keaton, and we've seen Mysterio played by Jake Gyllenhaal. Two characters they, which have no they tried to do some. Well, they tried to do some personal stuff with um, with Mysterio a, a, little, a little bit, bit. But certainly not in the same level again. Like I said, of of Green Goblin or Doc Ock in the Raimi films, but yeah, and then Green Goblin, who's you know his best friend's dad, and Doc Ock, who is like. A father figure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's what I thought. Yeah, I, I didn't want to mix up the the Spider Man video game with <laughs> Spider Man Two. He's, I mean, but he's yeah. a, he's a professional role model who becomes a personal role model, or like yeah. you know, as well. Exactly right, and he, like Vulture, Mysterio. I'm like keen on those guys, right? But like, I mean, the Malekith and Thor: The Dark World, like Alexander Pierce and in Winter Soldier. I mean, I like Winter Soldier, but Alexander Pierce ain't the Ain't the villain for me, dog. Um, Ant-Man, like Yellow Jacket, like again, like not really related to these characters. And it's just, um, there's it, it's just not the most important thing to these movies. Take it or leave it, I guess. Yeah. All right, Scott. Well, we've had a pretty lengthy discussion thus far, um, you know, because we talked about a lot of things up front. I'm wondering... Yeah. Um, with the final few minutes here, um, yep. is there anything you want to discuss that you feel like we haven't been able to touch on yet? Yeah, absolutely. I do. There are a couple of things uh, from the technical side that I do want to talk about. You mentioned the cinematography. I think it's really good. I think Dustin Daniel Cretton 
we haven't talked about him enough probably. I think that the touch that he brings to this is really remarkable. I mean, I think you can really feel his presence in this movie, um, maybe for even intangible reasons that I talked about earlier. But I find that even more remarkable because, you know, the movies that that he's done so far is Short Term 12, Just Mercy, The Glass Castle. I mean, these are movies that are not remotely martial arts inspired films. And but he is a but he is Asian, so you know he may absolutely have a background yeah. in, and in and he he clearly yeah. wanted to tell the story. This was a mm-hmm. you know I don't know about the specific story, but the character um, is certainly relevant to him, and he found inspiration to tell the story uh, in that, and and he does that really well. And the like I said, the fluidity of the combat, which I talked about earlier, you know we, we've talked about sort of like the top level action directors in the MCU as being like the Russo brothers, right? Like. And I felt a similar level of fluidity in the action. Um, smaller scale scenes where we see it excel the most, um, you know, hand-to-hand combat. These are more personal affairs than what we're getting in some of the big Avengers team-up movies or Captain America, Civil War, et cetera, um, where, where the Russo brothers are sort of mastering their, their craft for tracking characters in these large sequences. But I think that, Destin Daniel Cretton does a really good job, a better job than I think we've seen in the other Marvel director who's directing a lot of action, really up close and personal action sequences in doing that. And then I think the last part for me is the score by Joel P. West and the soundtrack for this thing, for this film. Really good stuff. I think that, you know, if you throw aside some of the most iconic, you know, Avengers themes, et cetera, that you get in in the biggest combination movies. I mean, this this has some some motifs and some notes that you know have been stuck in my head since I saw this. And you know, I went and like you know bookmarked the the soundtrack, uh, the score on on Spotify, and you know, going back and listening to to pieces from it here and there. I think it's really strong. It's the same composer that's done all of the work for Dustin Daniel Cretton's other films. And so, again, I think a really interesting case study in being able to translate across very different genres. Um, and, I, and I'm really quite impressed by it. I thought the score was fantastic. Yeah, the soundtrack is good, too. I have to mention that um, Anderson Pack has a song over the closing the credit credits, song. which yeah. uh, Anderson Pack's a great artist. And uh, I thought that was a, a nice addition to the movie. Um, yep. But, yeah, uh, that could probably wrap us up for our discussion on this movie. Uh, do you want to briefly say anything about the credit scenes at all? I mean, we've kind of hinted oh, sure. at them. Uh, but your mid credit yeah. scene, um, it, we basically get uh, Hulk and Captain Marvel um, sort of welcoming Shang-Chi and Katie into the Avengers, um, in, in the Avengers headquarters of, of sort. Um and then, yeah, the post credit scene is this weird sort of thing going on with the sister character. Maybe they're setting up her up as a villain. She's kind of like taking over the palace now, right, with um, with Wenwu out, out of the picture. Yeah, and all of the warriors kind of like on her side now. Yeah, I didn't know how to read that post credit scene. Like, I wasn't sure if it was meant to be like, because obviously right before the end of the credits, it's talking about how she is taking down her you know their father's operations she's not doing that in the post credit scene if anything she's just taking them over um 
So I don't know if that is supposed to be setting it up as as a villain in a it, it would be sequel. it would be kind of weird. I feel like just because you know they do make a point in this like yeah closing action scene of like having him holding on to her right, being like I'm not letting you go this time. One of the yeah. only good moments in like the last part of the action again because they focus on like the emotional stakes, but. Um, yeah, that's that's why I wasn't sure how to read it because I think the the other there's like another. It's like re- that's re- supposed that. to be like the healing moment for them, right? Like you, you're yeah. supposed to think at this point, okay, he's now he's made up for his past transgressions and she's going to be cool with it. But yeah, the uh, the other read is that it's just like you know gr- you know one final girl boss scene with this, some really cool artwork that they've graffitied on you know throughout this palace. Which if that's the read of the movie, I mean, cool, love it. Like a waste of a post credit scene, but yeah. I mean, half of half, if not two thirds of the Marvel's post credit scenes are complete wastes. But like, whatever. Um, the mid credit scene, though, I really did like it. I liked this whole note of seeing Brie Larson, Mark Ruffalo, confirming there. I mean, we, knew, we definitely knew that Brie Larson was still in this. I mean, she has a movie coming out. But I think that the continuation of Mark Ruffalo in this is was interesting. I think seeing Hell, Simulu, and Aquafina. I'm going to interact with those characters and then i mean wong also just hilarious in this movie i love benedict wong oh gosh um, okay i'll mention i'll mention the actual funniest part when we get to the favorite moment here in a minute but yeah yeah, yeah. but i think that those are all interesting the sort of plot hook i guess that they're leaving you with is that there's some sort of like interdimensional beacon that's been set off by shang chi using the rings I don't really care that much about that. No. <laughs> I don't know if that's Kang the Conqueror or, you know, Jonathan Major's character for Ant-Man Quantumania or what's going on there, if it's something else entirely. I don't know if it's supposed to be setting up Eternals with, like, the the whole thing, the whole deal with that movie with the Deviants or whatever. I'm not – I don't know what's going on there, but whatever. I like the vibes of all of them sort of around the table and, and playing off of each other a little bit. Um, I enjoyed that aspect of it. Yeah, and not surprising to see Brie Larson show up. She has worked with Destiny Daniel in every one of his films. So That's true. Um, there you go. We had to get, did, get her. Did in Destiny Daniel Cretton direct the post credit scene though? That's the real question. <laughs> I don't know. Um, it's often different right, directors. Scott, we can move into wrap up now. And favorite moment, since I just had the epiphany, I'll say mine. Mm-hmm. Um, now we we did not talk about Ben Kingsley as uh, Trevor Slattery, aka the the Mandarin. Uh, yeah. Excellent, excellent in the movie. Um, and yeah. in particular, the bit that he has about Planet of the Apes uh, ha- absolutely had me cracking up. Um, one of the yeah. hardest I've laughed in a, in a Marvel movie in a while. Uh, this bit he has about watching Planet of the Apes as a child and his mother telling them that it wasn't real, that it was just acting and him thinking that means that they had trained the monkeys as actors, um, which is just, just great. Uh, and his delivery of the whole thing. Cause he's just like, you could tell he takes it so seriously. Um, yeah. I thought it was, was a great moment. And the humor in the movie that did work mostly came from that character. So it was, it was great to see him back because Iron Man three gets a bad rap. I really enjoy the movie. Maybe it's just because I enjoy Shane Black. Again, it's another movie that isn't super connected to the MCU as a whole, so maybe I enjoy that aspect of it as well. Yeah, just just my thoughts. Uh, your favorite scene or moment, Scott? Yeah, for me, it's it's going to be the bus scene. We've already talked. It's a little boring, I guess, maybe to say, but that is really a really cool scene. If we're going for individual moments, I do really like when Wong makes Abomination punch himself in the face um, with the with the interdimensional rings. I don't know what they call those in Doctor Strange. You wouldn't know. You haven't seen it. Um, but 
yeah, I, I enjoy that moment and I certainly enjoy the bus scene. Um, I think that that is sh- everything that you said at the beginning. It's shot, it's choreographed. Um, and I think it's, it's edited and mixed with, with the, with the music perfectly. So good work. All right, let's put a score on it, Scott. What do you give Shang-Chi out of 10 rings? Uh, 7.4 rings out of 10. I'm not quite sure how he's going to get 0.4 of a ring out of it. Those things seem pretty indestructible, but, uh, good luck. Simulu, if you can get 0.4 out of it. Seven rings for me. It, it, it had so much potential and it was following through on that potential until it wasn't. Um, so please clean up the visuals for the next movie. Just please fix them because um, I'd be curious if people like really agree with like the visuals because the visuals aren't my problem with the end. I just think it's sort of like it, defi- it definitely is. It definitely is for me. But all I'm saying, yeah. Spider-Man No Way Home, let's see some pumpkin bombs. That's all I'm asking for. Um, I mean, it's in the trailer. We're going to get pumpkin bombs. Sorry. I, I will say just on top of that, I just feel like the color grading is like the issue. Like it just it's just so like dark. But it was an issue gray. earlier in the movie, too, I guess, is my thing. Like I said, like with the with the with the fight in Macau. But but I but that was creative, at least because it was it was on like the scaffolding and all of that. And they're swinging around yeah, and it's, I agree. you know, absolutely. So, so I'll give, I'll give it that. Um, but anyway, all right, <laughs> we'll wrap up and move on now. Um, that'll do it for our review of Shang-Chi and the legend of the 10 rings. When we come back, uh, we will have some casting news as well as a wrap up and recap from uh, some of the big premieres that happened at the Venice film festival this past, this past week. Uh, so stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back to this episode of Some Like It, Scott. Scott, the Venice Film Festival was held this past week. uh, And in past years, uh, it has kind of been a place where we get a first look at a lot of the movies that ended up being big Oscar contenders. Of course, Joker won the Golden Lion um, back in 2019 um, and went on to get the most nominations for uh, best picture. I forget what the winner was the previous year. I think it might have been the favorite, I want to say. But I, I, again, it, it usually ends up being a good predictor of what goes on to get some Oscar nominations. Um, and a lot of our most anticipated movies of the year were premiering. We got um, to hear sort of the first takes on them. And I guess, you know, the place to start is probably with Dune, um, which is, you know, the the movie of the fall, Denis News adaptation of the Frank Herbert uh, novel was seen for the first time by critics and it seems like most of them quite enjoyed it um you know there was the odd negative review out there david ehrlich's was the one that got a lot of traction uh, but he is uh, you know as a lot of people were pointing out he's a known villeneuve hater he hasn't really given positive reviews to any of villeneuve's movies um but actually on that note amy nicholson and glenn kenny um Glenn Kenny, formerly of New York Times, now of RogerEbert.com, both are also, you know, Villeneuve skeptics, and they both gave really positive reviews to the movie. Um, and it, it does seem like looking at the Ehrlich review a little bit more and talking with one of our friends who is a huge Dune stan as well, he just like seems to like kind of miss the point. They're like, he's he's talking about like, oh, there's nothing really happening. They're just kind of like setting up and but 
well, yeah, like this is part one of the story, right? Like this isn't meant to be the entire thing. And also from what I understand, that's kind of true to what Dune is. It's not necessarily going to be the action packed epic that maybe they tried to make the last trailer look like, and maybe that people are kind of expecting. So I I don't know, again, I don't know that much about it. So I'm not going to go so far as to say that Ehrlich missed the boat because obviously I haven't seen the movie yet. Um, But it does seem like also a movie can be part one of a story. Yeah. And just not be interesting because of that. Right. Like that's not, it's possible. Yeah. I was just saying on a surface level, it seems like some of his critiques are maybe a little, uh, what the movie was actually going for. But again, it it could still Mm -hmm. be achieve what it was going for and not, not be good. So uh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. But, and I mean, to, I, I mean, I know that I've talked about this enough on this podcast, probably, but I'm of the same mindset of, you know, Brandon, who is big, even bigger Dune, Dune fan than I am. Um, and I read this earlier this year. One of the things that I think is really notable about both Dune books that I've read so far, because I have read the sequel, Dune Messiah as well, which apparently they want it to be a, the third movie. They do want to make the second book, which I think makes sense based on the second book as well, but they want to make it into like a trilogy with the second book being the third movie. And what I will say is that one of the, one of the standout things about Dune, which what makes it so surprising that it's such a cult classic of a book. I mean, this thing is held up to be one of the best sci-fi novels ever written, et cetera, is that there is a lot of buildup and very, very, very quick payoffs. Sometimes payoffs you don't even see in the text. Uh, you know, firsthand, like you see it after the fact or secondhand, which I found it, it, it can be really startling at first until you understand that that's kind of the point of what the book is doing. And so to hear that as a critique or whatever, or as a statement makes me be like, yeah, that that sounds like what Dune is. Now your mileage may vary about whether you like that or appreciate that or think that's good filmmaking. I think that's up for the viewer to decide, but it doesn't surprise me that that's been the response. And you know, I feel lucky enough to, I'm seeing this in less than a month. I'm seeing it at the New York Film Festival, so I can't wait, because I'm sure I'll see it several more times when it comes out in theaters as well. Yeah, I don't read too much into the, the Ehrlich review either. I guess that's what I'm ultimately trying to say is, it seems like his, his lot of a lot of his critiques are, it's just Dune. So if Dune is something yeah. that you're on board with, you you very well may like this movie a lot, but we'll see. Um, elsewhere, Scott, um, another movie that we were looking forward to last night in Soho, Edgar Wright's film, um, premiered uh, and was also getting very good reviews. Um, I saw that uh, Kyle Buchanan, New York Times, really liked the movie. Um, whoever covered it for IndieWire also gave it a really positive review. Um, interesting. It might have been her. Um Interestingly, uh, Edgar Wright has done something which I think is pretty cool, which is that he gave notes, it looks like, to everyone who watched the movie saying not to reveal the twists and spoilers in the movie, which is kind of an old-fashioned thing. Um, Billy Wilder famously did this uh, with Witness for the Prosecution at the very end of the movie after the, like, right before the credits roll, there's like a message on screen that's like, please do not reveal the ending of the movie to your, you know, to your colleagues be your peers because it is you know a famous twist ending so um you know maybe he's trying to uh, echo back to the era he's evoking in this film i don't know um it's just like f- set in the 50s i believe so um i feel like shambles we'll also done that 
Yeah, he he very well may have, but we'll see. Um, I mean, I, I think from an you know aesthetic perspective, from a genre perspective, from a cast perspective, this is the most I've ever been excited for an Edgar Wright movie. Um, and I haven't seen anything from the early reviews to deter my excitement any. I think this is still um, near the top of, if not at the top of my list of most anticipated movies for the rest of the year. And some, a couple of other movies, Scott, uh, speaking of anticipated movies, uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal's The Lost Daughter premiered, also picking up great reviews. Um, maybe I'm sounding like a broken record here, but uh, David Ehrlich did give this one a really positive review. And um, there were a few others that I saw um, that, you know, rated this movie pretty highly and said it was, you know, a confident debut for Maggie Gyllenhaal. That's what I kept seeing was... Um, you know that they were people were really impressed with her direction as a debut filmmaker um which is great to see because she certainly has the cast for it right like you you put that cast together and you know you don't expect them to disappoint ever um with olivia coleman and jesse buckley and dakota johnson um but maybe there was a little more of a question mark around her as a director about around gyllenhaal as a director first time can she bring all of this together in a satisfying way. And it seems like the early indicators are that she has. Um, so that's good to see. And then um, another one, Scott, from a female filmmaker, Jane Campion's The Power of the Dog, um, Netf another Netflix movie coming out uh, in the fall. Um, this is her Western starring Benedict Cumberbatch and Kirsten Dunst. Um, and also picking up positive reviews. Um, Again, David Ehrlich, um, I think this was his one of his highest rated, if not his highest rated of the of the film festival. He was very high on the movie. Um, it seems like most people were high on the movie. I, I saw I think of all the movies, maybe um, that I was reading reviews on this one might have been the one that was getting the most that Oscar. The Oscars were mentioned the most around this movie like um, this could very possibly be a. A contender for a lot of the major categories including you know best picture best director best actor maybe for benedict cumbermatch a lot of people were very complimentary of his performance um and yeah so that's one i'm looking forward to scott i don't know what your takes are on any of these or any other movies that showed that caught your eye yeah i think i think well the only one that comes to mind that i know has received a lot of buzz and some to an extent around Oscar contention as well is the Diane Spencer biopic Spencer with right. Kristen Stewart. That's like the one other, dare I say, American film in competition over there that I think has received quite a bit of buzz and that we know is probably, I think it, it is coming out in this year, I believe. I think yeah, it does I believe have so, a confirmed yeah. release date. Yeah. Okay, cool. I mean, the lost daughter, I'm very excited about, I think it has not the same genre, but I think Maggie Gyllenhaal's, the way people are talking about her directorial debut here feels very reminiscent of Olivia Wilde with Booksmart, this really strong debut from an actress who had never directed before, but obviously has a very, you know, key understanding of what it's like to be an actor on a set um, and, and knows how those things cross over and how to manage those personalities and those talents. I think she's working with a lot bigger names than Olivia Wilde was, and she's certainly doing a more dramatic movie than Olivia Wilde was with, with Booksmart being almost a straight-laced comedy with some dramatic elements, but mostly just comedic elements to it. 
And so I'm really excited for that reason. I'm getting to see that at New York Film Festival as well, but I know that's coming out in December on Netflix. I, Power of the Dog is also showing at the New York Film Festival, although it's one of the centerpiece screenings. So I decided that it probably wasn't worth spending like 60 or $70 to get a ticket to that, unfortunately. So I will wait, but I'm excited. I think it's such a weird such a weird film. Like Benedict Cumberbatch is a cowboy. Um, it's a really weird premise, but I'm intrigued in a good way about it and really looking forward to seeing what the talented cast can do. And I've all, I haven't seen a Jane Campion movie, but I've certainly heard yeah. many good things about Jane Campion. So I'm looking forward to it as well. I've not either, but I did add a couple to my watch list uh, this week. So I'm hoping to, to get to those uh, before I watch Power of the Dog for sure. Cause I want to have a little bit of context, at least for her as a filmmaker, because she is very acclaimed, but. Yeah. yeah the, the only other thing is, and it's not a movie, so I don't want to give too much airtime to it here on the podcast, but they did screen the first five episodes of Scenes from a Marriage, which is Oscar Isaac and Jessica Chastain's upcoming. I mean, I think it literally releases in like a week or two. It is. This, oh, wow. Interesting. I hadn't seen anything on Twitter about the two of them. So, wow. Uh, I didn't I had no idea that they were in something together. Oh, you're making a Twitter joke that's gone over my head. You're gonna have to explain it for me and the rest of the wow, audience. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So there, there's there's footage of them on the red carpet, um, acting very sort of intimate towards each other, and they're both married to other people. And the internet just Twitter just absolutely exploded, like freaking out, thinking like, oh, this was the greatest thing they've ever seen. Like people were dying that uh, you know because of their how they looked together and the, fl- the little bit of flirtiness that was going on between them on the red carpet. People yeah. were just like shipping it obs- obsessively hard. So that was just kind of a, a thing that took over Twitter for a day this past weekend. That was like the Bradley Cooper, Lady Gaga performing at the Oscars. Or yeah, a little bit. <laughs> People lost their mind, even though, I mean, Lady Gaga did break up with her boyfriend or fiance or whatever a couple weeks after that, but uh, take that for what it's worth. I don't know. Nothing ever came of that. I don't think. I, uh, you know, not that I've heard of, but I'm not. I don't have my finger on the pulse in that way. But yeah, it's a it's a Swedish miniseries uh, focusing on an American couple. It's based on Sings from a Marriage, which was written by Ingmar Bergman, very famous Swedish writer director. Um, so I'm curious to see what that does. It feels like it's HBO's dramatic play in the fall, a la. The Mark Ruffalo misery piece from, from last year, um, whose name I've already forgotten, but we'll leave it at that. I yeah, I think this is going to be the. Like I know this for, much is true. Is that the name? Yeah, that's it. I know yeah. this much is true. Yeah, that's what it is. Every single time I go in to decide what next TV show I'm going to watch is, it's on the list. It's staring right back at me in my face, and I'm like, nope, next. <laughs> Uh, Scott, you wanted to talk about some casting news before uh, we finish up for today. Yeah, we'll make it quick because I know we we did talk at length about the the Venice Film Festival here. But Christopher Abbott, who is not someone we talk about all that much on the podcast thus far, it must be said, we did not get the opportunity to actually properly review Possessor last year, which was a film which he was a big standout in. Um, Scott, you were a huge fan of Possessor, one of your top one of your top movies of last year. You were a big fan of this particular performance with Christopher Abbott as well. We both did. We, did you see on the count of three at Sundance? 
I did not see that one. No. Okay, yeah. So I saw his movie at Sundance, um, which was called On the Count of Three. I don't know if it's actually coming out this year or not. I thought it would. It's it was a movie that got a lot of buzz coming out of Sundance. If it doesn't come out in the fall, I'm sure it will sometime next year. It, it does seem like the kind of movie that's definitely going to get picked up. It's provocative, um, ish, and certainly kinetically shot it's a very tight sub hundred minute movie where a lot happens that doesn't leave you a ton of time to reflect on what is happening until after the movie is over and i think that the way the movie punctuates itself may leave a sour taste in some people's mouth and you just have to sort of process that for yourself but i found his compelling his performance to be quite compelling um he's sort of the second lead in that and i think he's the stronger of the two leads in terms of performance in that movie, but he has just this past week been announced for two projects. One um, was a completely new project, and I believe he is co-starring with um, Margaret Qualley in a, I forget who the director is, but basically the, Zachary Wiggin, okay, I've never heard of him. Um, And it's a thriller called Sanctuary, where he, is Margaret Qualley is a dominatrix and I assume he is being, he is something to do with that relationship there. Weird, weirdish movie, but feels like in the wheelhouse and of the quirkiness and the eccentricity of what Christopher Abbott has been able to show in some of his more recent performances. His other one might be a little bit, um, I don't know how to say this, I guess a little bit more straight laced. He's starring alongside Emma Stone in a Fox Searchlight uh, movie with a director that I think we might all recognize was briefly alluded to earlier in this in this podcast, Yorgos Lanthimos, whose most recent film was The Favorite, you know, was nominated for a bunch of Oscars, won a couple, not too many, um, but he is co-starring with Emma Stone in in that movie. It's called Poor Things. Still not very much known about that film because sort of like a, a lot of the auteur directors, a lot of the plot details are kept under wrap for for these types of films, but these are big projects. I think particularly the Yorgos Lanthimos project is a very big one um, for him. We'll definitely get him in front of a lot more eyes just because Lanthimos now has that sort of Oscar cred. More people are aware than would have been before something like The Favorite. Um, I have no idea how approachable Yorgos Lanthimos' next film will be, but he's certainly been trending towards the more approachable. And so I think it's only a matter of time in which he uh, self-corrects there and, and gets really wild again. Um, but Searchlight is distributing it, so I think there's almost a, an assurance of quality when it comes to Searchlight. Um, they had a lot of success with The Favorite. I think they distributed his uh, distributed that film as well. So exciting stuff for Christopher Abbott, and hopefully this bodes well. Yeah, no, I'm definitely a fan of his. Uh, you mentioned Possessor. I mean, I do think that's his standout performance thus far, but, you know, Black Bear was a movie that uh, I saw last year that he was in. Um, the World to Come is one from this year that we've both seen, um, oh, man, in which he plays Vanessa Kirby's one. husband. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, going back a few years, he was in It Comes at Night, which is a Trey Edward Schultz movie that I like um, a good amount. Um, so I think he's a really strong presence. And like you said, he, he does quirky stuff, which I like. Um, and, you know, Yorgos Lanthimos may be 
a more known name, but you, you you'd be hard pressed to find a, a quirkier director out there. Um, you know, yeah. just looking at even the favorite, right. Which is just definitely his most mainstream, um, film so far, like still just has his style written all over it. I mean, it's very offbeat. Um, so I think yeah. that'll be a good match of performer and director. Um, I'm also Claire excited Denis for is like the-, the only quirkier filmmaker I can think of off the top of my head. I don't know if, if quirky is even the right word for Claire Denis, but um, I think uh, the other project, you know, I'm excited for too. Margaret Qualley is another person that I think is underrated. Um, you know, recently was in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but before that she, you know, had a long role on The Leftovers, one of my favorite shows. So um, hoping to see more from her in the future um, as well. And so I think hopefully this will prove a good match, the two of them on screen together. Um, and the setup is, you know, it's kind of interesting. It's not not what you'd expect to, to hear um, in, yeah. in your average film plot description. So we'll see where it goes. All right, Scott, that should just about do it for this episode of Some Like It, Scott. Where can our listeners find you on Twitter and Letterboxd? At Shelton 2013 And I am at Scarvy Dent. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast. If you have and you'd like to support us, don't forget about our Patreon page at patreon.com slash mediaplugpods. But even if you can't support us over there, we hope you will rate, review, subscribe, like, tell your friends, do all the things that you do on your preferred podcast app. And of course, we hope that you'll return for our next episode of the podcast in which we will be uh, reviewing the latest from director Paul Schrader, The Card Counter, starring Oscar Isaac. But until then, for Scott Shelton, I'm Scott Harvey. We'll see you down the road.